Hi, everyone. Drew Road here with the Broken Brain Podcast. Have you ever wondered how to create the ideal morning routine? Well, we have Dr. Stephanie Estima on the podcast today to talk all about morning routines and how having a strong morning routine creates freedom and resilience for the day ahead. This is a topic we've explored a little bit with past guests, but Dr. Stephanie really breaks down and walks you through the simple biohacks that anyone can do in the morning to get their mind warmed up, focused, and ready to perform. We also explore the idea of what it means to create a shredded mind the same way we can think about creating a shredded body. We also explore the topic of kids with Dr. Stephanie and tips to improve their brain health and how they can actually use video games in a healthy and helpful way to boost their brain health. Dr. Stephanie also takes us through a deep dive of how we can use a modified ketogenic approach for women, which she calls the clean keto approach. A little background on Dr. Stephanie. Dr. Stephanie is a big hearted, energetic and compassionate healer dedicated to changing lives through evidence-based approaches using strategies like chiropractic, nutrition, fitness, mindset, and more. She studied neuroscience and psychology and received her Bachelor of Science with honors from the University of Toronto. She then went on to complete her Doctorate of Chiropractic degree at the Canadian Memorial Chiropractic College. Dr. Stephanie is the owner and clinic director of The Health Loft, a chiropractic clinic in downtown Toronto. She's been in private practice for the last 15 years where she has had immense satisfaction serving the hundreds of families she calls practice members. Dr. Stephanie fully understands how stress, if left untreated, can fully integrate into the body and have devastating effects on the quality of life. It's her aim and mission to educate her practice members and surrounding community on how to reach their true health potential. Dr. Stephanie is a former figure competitor, placing third in the New York Regional Division in her first competition in the National Physique Committee. She has two incredible children and a long-standing love of languages, quirky jokes, and superheroes. Now, on to my interview with Dr. Stephanie Estima. So Dr. Stephanie, welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast. Thank you, it's an honor to be here. So Dr. Stephanie, you were involved uh, you and your partner, Gio, are involved in this event called the Archangel Summit. It's one of the main reasons that we're here. Dr. Hyman and I were participating and attending the event over the course of this weekend. And one of the consistent themes of this weekend for entrepreneurs and high performers and people who want to get the most out of life was the importance of morning routines. As a practitioner, you're constantly talking to your patients about the importance of morning routines. Give us the breakdown. Why are morning routines important? And what does a morning routine that works for somebody look like for you? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think I have spent quite a few years really thinking about and creating my own routine and then fine tuning it so that I can, you know, they always say like the best way to, you know, teach is to do it. So morning routine is important very simply because it creates more freedom in your life. So a lot of people that I see, a lot of patients that I see will come in and they'll say, you know, gosh, I just, I, I, I want to exercise more. I want to be eating better. I just don't have the time. And, you know, while we can kind of do a deeper dive into why that may not necessarily be the case in terms of, you know, stories that you're telling yourself, what I also think is really important is creating structure in your life, whether it's a morning routine, whether it's an evening routine, whether it's how you process and learn information through the day, the more that you have in terms of a structure, the more freedom it creates. 
and I've had a lot of, you know, creatives and, you know, people who are very right brained and very artistic say, well, I just, I can't stick to something that's so regimented. But what we find when we start to play with those frameworks for people, you know, how you start your day is, you know, how you, you know, sometimes, you know, that, that old saying where, you know, how you do one thing is how you do everything. When you start your day with intention and there's a structure to it, you actually create more freedom and more flexibility through the day to be creative and to do the things that you are, you know, to stay in your genius and to do, and to do the things that you're really good at. There's this author, uh, Jason Fried, who started this company called Basecamp and has written a bunch of different work. He has this quote that says, constraints create creativity. Yeah, man. It's yeah, through the constraints 100%. that they allow us. So let's expand a little bit more on that. You know, one of the things that we heard about is that the challenge is if you don't have a morning routine, you're often at victim to everybody else's priorities. Absolutely. Which also includes sometimes the media or other things. So when you work with your patients to create a morning routine that literally starts their day off right, rocks their world, what are some of the core elements that you have them thinking about that they maybe previously didn't think about? So they're waking up and from the time that they wake up, how do they start to create intention by having structure and boundaries in the morning, what does that actually look like? That's a great question. So maybe we can start off with what it doesn't look like, which is having your phone on your nightstand and as soon as your alarm goes off from your phone, picking it up and looking at it. Just to what you were saying with you know, looking at the news and social media and all of those things, the the intention and the point of a morning routine is to create momentum in your day, is to start the day off on the right foot, to get the dopamine firing, which is a you know, neurotransmitter that's really in, uh, heavily involved in uh, staying, you know, engaged in something and passionate and motivated. So you really want to get as many quick wins as you can to start the day. The easiest thing that I tell people to do, and I know that it sounds kind of funny, but it's making your bed. And I do this every, like the first thing I do, you know, out of my, you know, get up out of bed, go, you know, wash my face and then I make my bed. Uh, I actually learned this from one of the speakers that was at Archangel. His name is Dan Dapandi. Uh, he's a, a Buddhist monk. And it's just like minimum effective dose. Like it doesn't have to be four seasons. The corners are, you know, folded in perfectly. It really just has to sometimes be as simple as pulling the duvet over your covers and like straightening out the sheets. Um, this creates like a, you know, a bit of a dopamine hit, like you've already achieved one thing, like there's already one thing that's done. And that forward momentum is really, really important for that. Uh, that's the first thing that I actually tell everybody to do, even though it's, you know, super simple and people sometimes will roll their eyes. You know, when I first will say, yeah, just like make your bed in the morning. That's how we're going to get you to, you know, create structure. The second thing that I often will tell people is a cold shower. So this is really borrowed from Wim Hof, uh, the Wim Hof technique and like breathing and, and being involved in or being exposed to the cold. So some people who are hardcore core like Wim will do like it's all like it's an ice bath. But for most of us, you know, you may take like a, a warm shower and then, you know, the last minute or so is like you turn off all the heat and you just stand under the water uh, as freezing as you can kind of handle it. A lot of individuals who are listening to this podcast are new, so they're thinking a cold shower. What's the point of that? You know, because they're thinking the point is to make them miserable. But there's actually some science behind it. Can yeah. you help break it down just a little bit more? Sure. Yeah. So when you are exposing yourself to cold, it's a really easy way to hack into energetic production. So when we look at on a cellular level, when we look at some of the uh, like the powerhouse of the cells called the mitochondria, it becomes far more efficient at generating energy in very hot or very cold environments. So you know, cryotherapy. That's why we we sort of see 
you know, wellness clinics operating, you know, uh, two or three minute stints in like very, very cold uh, environments. And that's really to A, to reduce inflammation, but B, to also facilitate and amplify mitochondrial production, which is your energy. So when you are standing in a, in a shower with no heat, you are increasing, you know, like mitochondrial biogenesis, which is the actual mitochondria themselves. You're producing more of them and you are ha- more of the mitochondria that you do have are actually more efficient at creating energy. Uh, it wakes you up. It's really good for your brain. And it just sort of sets the, you know, it just kind of sets you up. You feel refreshed and you're awake. So even here in cold winter Toronto, <laughs> if you, if you call Dr. Stephanie up after her shower, she's had a little bit of a cold shower. Always. And it's a nice way to wake up. So making your bed, cold Mm -hmm. shower, what are some other tools in the toolbox when it comes to morning routines that you help patients think about including into their protocol? There's a couple different things based on who I'm talking to. Um, I will often recommend a some sort of physical priming. And what I mean by that is not a workout, like not a full on workout, but five or 10 minutes of one or two movements where you are getting the blood flowing through the body. And again, this is more of a brain hack as well, because, you know, when we are and it can be very simple, it can be things like jumping jacks or push ups. I actually my personal preference is the rebounder. So it's like a rebounder is like a small little trampoline. I'll just kind of put my headphones on, listen to a podcast or some music, and I'll just kind of jam out for like five or 10 minutes. And do you do this before your shower? after your shower after the shower so after a shower um are you ready for the day like do you get dressed for work or do you just literally go from the shower you know to rebounding yes Okay, got yeah. it. So you're uh, doing it for how long did you say? Five, 10 minutes. Okay. Yeah, five. So this is not, and I, I, I just want to preface this by saying that I understand that there's a lot of people that really enjoy a morning workout, like all out, you know, they're doing HIIT training and they're doing weight training or they're doing like steady state endurance. And if that really works for you, that's, that's wonderful. And I can like encourage you to continue that. But when we look at, you know, the optimal time to work out, it's, it's usually not in the morning. We tend to be a little stiffer. Our body temperatures are a little colder. Um, so when we are doing things like a little physical prime, five or 10 minutes, you are stimulating what we call afferents or efferents or like the messages coming to and from the brain and movement is very heavy to the frontal lobe. So the frontal lobe, as your listeners may be aware, is, uh, you know, our executive decision maker and the motor cortex, which is what drives movement, where we receive information about movement and where the information about movement goes down into the body. Uh, it, that is located in the front part of our brain. So that physical priming also wakes up your executive decision maker. So it makes you more cognitively aware. It makes you more alert. And it also primes you for your day. Like if you are going to work and you have to make decisions, you're in meetings, you know, this is this is all frontal lobe function. So some some physical priming in the morning is really important. So some people will like a full workout. I tend to, if it's, if it's possible to structure in your day, a workout somewhere around lunchtime, because your core body temperature at that point is a little warmer. You've probably had some sort of food and it's, you know, optimal for endurance, strength and, and recovery. And people all know that feeling that if you're sometimes stuck in your head, you go for a walk. Yeah, man. And this is no different. Yeah. You're just starting your day off that way. So yeah. you mentioned uh, a couple of things. So one could be, you said some movements. Mm-hmm. So one could be the rebounder. Yeah. Is if somebody doesn't have a rebounder and they're pretty mm-hmm. cheap on Amazon, you can mm-hmm. get it anywhere. But if somebody mm-hmm. doesn't have a rebounder and they wanted to do something else, is there another movement or another way to uh, stimulate the same effect inside the body? 
Yeah, it can be really any movement that feels good. So, you know, about 90% of the stimulation to the brain comes from the spine. So as long as your spine is really moving, you're good. So it can be a jumping jack, it can be push-ups, it can be jumping squats, it can be lunges, you can do Spider-Man push-ups, you can, you know, you can, you know, if you have weights or you have, you know, it could be, you know, even, you know, like canned foods from the pantry you can like you know do weight training in that way but it's just you know it's repetition for five or ten minutes just to kind of get everything lubricated and your brain awake yeah one of uh, our favorites and dr hyman's favorites is uh the new york times has this thing called the seven minute workout Mm -hmm. and it's a seven minute scientifically proven workout actually by a university in canada i forgot which one of the uh one of the universities in canada helped design this uh workout and it's uh, just a quick little high intensity seven minute workout. You just need a chair, nothing really else, right. and a good way to start the day. Mm-hmm. Um, let's continue further from there. You know, the day is unfolding. You've taken your shower, you've made your bed, uh, you've done a little bit of movement to help mm-hmm. wake the body up. Mm-hmm. People often think about food in the morning. Mm-hmm. And I would say it's probably one of the things that is the most confusing. Yes. And there's so much history and culture when it comes to breakfast and what breakfast food is, being sweet, being attached to brands. What does Dr. Stephanie's breakfast look like? I tend to focus on in the morning, I really like to focus on rehydration rather than refeeding. So when we think about, you know, hopefully you've been, when you wake up in the morning, you've been fasting for eight hours. If you've had about eight hours of sleep, that's around the optimum, like seven to nine hours is kind of, you know, that golden time for sleep and restoration. Um, you, and, but in that time you also haven't had any food. So what is really important for me anyway, is to rehydrate. I don't typically, I don't typically have a breakfast. My first meal comes at about 11 or 12 o'clock. So I practice something called time restricted eating or intermittent fasting, which we can, you know, kind of get into, I'm sure we'll get into it today. Um, but my breakfast is, is water, (laughs) is water or black coffee. I'll have a black coffee, uh, in the morning as well. And I'm sure sometimes when you see patients for the, for the first time and they're transitioning from a standard American diet, maybe where they're used to things, if they need a transitionary breakfast or Mm -hmm. if they're used to eating in the morning while they will rebuilding in the process of getting towards fasting and creating that routine, if they wanted to have breakfast, what would be some of the boundaries that you would help them set around it to help them fuel and maintain their blood sugar throughout the day? Yeah. So if they're looking to, uh, so there's two ways I want to, two areas I kind of want to answer this question in. One is if you are looking to sort of delay when you first eat food, I would start that off really slowly. So if you're used to eating every morning at, you know, 730 and you've done that for the last 20 years, you have like a certain rhythm, right? We have a certain feeding and sleep and wake cycle and feeding rhythm as well. So if you're looking to kind of push that back, if you are looking to do like a time restricted eating or an intermittent fasting, I would start pushing it back by like 15 minutes and really very slowly uh, allow your body to adapt to that. A lot of times people get, and I'm, I'm guilty of this too, like you get a new idea and you're like, I'm going to do this hundred percent. And I'm going to like, and then you, you end up shocking your body and you hate it and you never want to do it again. So my best advice for people who are wanting to start intermittent fasting is to very slowly start pushing back that uh, breakfast time, 15 minutes for, you know, for one week. And then the next week it's 15 more, you know, so you're very over the course of several months, you're really like allowing your body to catch up and habituate to that. And you'll be regulating your hunger signals. Now, that being said, when you do eat, I am very much a proponent of not having a uh, high sugar, or high glycemic meal or a, a high carbohydrate uh, meal, I tend to really 
get my patients to understand the benefits of having a lot of fat with supporting protein. So when we look at, you know, a very typical standard American breakfast, it might be like, you know, oatmeal or it might be a bagel or a muffin, even sometimes a donut with like coffee that's like, you know, laden with sugar. What you're really doing to the body is you're sending it into uh, you're spiking glucose in the in the blood because that's what when you eat a carbohydrate, it turns into something called glucose or sugar. Uh, you know, it's simple, simple word is of that is sugar um, in the uh, in the body. And that will increase a hormone in your body called insulin. And your insulin is your fat storage hormone. So when you have insulin that's high, your insulin levels are high, you are in fat storage mode, meaning that you are increasing your adiposity or the amount of stored fat that you have, stored energy that you have on the body. When we eat things like fat, it has almost the exact opposite effect. It has almost no effect on insulin. So eating something that's pure fat, so something like, you know, Div Asprey, who is on, on our panel, are drinking a bulletproof coffee where it's, you know, some coffee, but it's also, there's a, there's a, there's a fat meal in there. There's almost no effect on insulin. In fact, it's, it's almost negligible. So you are, you can start getting into more of fat burning mode, which is what we really want to be doing. And when you're having fat, it's also much more stable source of energy. So when you have a carbohydrate meal, the bagel, the English muffin, the donut, whatever it is, you will have a surge of insulin. You'll have a surge, this like sugar spike and this insulin spike. It can actually almost look like manic, like the patient will have, or the person will have so much energy, um, but then they crash, right? And we've all, we've all had that, right? Where we have like a, you know, a yogurt, a low fat yogurt that has like so much sugar Even sometimes like a vegan acai bowl that has a ton of, right. Really great things inside of there, but is also sweetened. Right. That also can be an example of that. Exactly. So there's usually fat. So eggs with the yolks um, is if it's, that's my favorite breakfast ever. Is like eggs with yolks, some avocado, maybe some bacon if you're having it, or it can just be you know I like to put sauerkraut or some sort of fermented food with that as well. And maybe some greens. You okay some, with that? Yeah, some arugula. Absolutely. I'm actually really uh, one of the. We actually have an online program. Um, it's called the Keto Clean program. And what it is, it's basically a, a green, like a green leafy. It's a ketogenic diet, but it's really plant-based, meaning that when you look at your plate, there's three questions I want you to be asking. Where are the plants? Should take up about a third of your plate. Where's the protein and where are the fats? So the fat really should be the fill, but we also know that fats are also much more dense calorically. So they are, you know, you don't need a lot. You don't need so much to go to go. In terms of quantity, they have a lot of calories and it still might be the majority is coming from fat and protein, but on the size of the plate. Right. Not so much like protein, like protein is really important. We do uh, in in the Keto Clean program, we do have like a moderate consumption of protein because we do a lot of people think keto is high fat, high protein, mm-hmm. um, which is not necessarily the case. We're trying to really restrict very much processed carbohydrates and then simple carbohydrates and then also a lot of the proteins as well. People tend to eat too much protein. Where does mindset when it comes to morning routines, mm-hmm. where does mindset play a role and How do you talk about that with your patients? I think it's everything. Um, You know, continuing on the morning routine after somebody's like physically primed, like they've had the cold shower, you know, the energy production is there. They've physically moved. So their frontal lobe is awake. I think that's actually the time where you can start thinking about how you want to conquer the day. So what I will often have people do and what I personally do as well is I will be reading like whatever book I'm, I'm reading at the time. I will read and I will journal about it. So 
sometimes people will say, oh, it's really important to read. And I completely agree with that. But I also think that reading can sometimes be passive. So I will have people read uh, a book that's interesting to them. And then when the idea like when an idea hits them about something, like maybe they've connected the dots in some way. Like, for example, right now I'm reading a book called uh, The Body Keeps uh, Keeps Score. And it's about trauma. It's about PTSD. And, it's mm-hmm. you know, this this doctor, this MD was, you know, treating veterans from the war. And we talk, there's like EMDR in it. But when I have, when I make a connection, whether it's for a patient or myself, I'll stop and I'll start writing about it. And I think that that is when we start to... Uh, cultivate mindset what I think is important is that you start to develop trust in yourself so when you have these like you know when you're you know reading and you're journaling sometimes what happens you know sometimes the most important thing is the idea that happens after the idea right so we have an idea we start writing about it and there's all these other things that flow from it so we start to develop self-trust and a reliance on the self which I think is really important for mindset because a lot of times we are taught to put other people up on a pedestal or to not trust or to really we are really disconnected I think as a you know as a society from our intuition we are often too as much as the brain is important we're often too cerebral and it can be too left brain where we're too analytical too uh, linear and we don't actually kind of integrate the intuitiveness maybe of the right brain but also of you know what I like to call like your soul set as well right no that's great advice because I think uh, so far and the brain and the body and the gut, they all work together. They're all one, yeah. But in the morning routine, you've focused so far on first getting the body ready. Mm-hmm. And the body can impact the brain just as much as the brain can impact the body. Absolutely. And I often find this unique theme that happens, which is that when you start with the body, it gets the brain more receptive for ideas, more receptive for things, more receptive for components. In the positive psychology movement, People talk about the benefit of journaling, which you've talked about over mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. But one time, one thing that we forget about is that are we in the right almost mood mm-hmm. for journaling? State. And so state. Yeah. And that mm-hmm. state has more to do with our body mm-hmm. than it does just telling our brain, get in the right state. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think Tim Ferriss talks about this when he talks about like your state determines the story that you're telling yourself. So we've all, you know. I've been there where I've just at the end of the day or, you know, kids have been going crazy, you know, whatever the day looks like for me. And I'm like, God, I'm so tired. This has been such a tough day. And if I if I somehow make it to the gym and I do my workout, I'm instantly energized. I'm instantly happy and more at peace. So I absolutely think that when we think about the brain and the body, they're really the more I've sort of been in practice and seen patients and patterns, you know, you get to sort of, you know, see patterns over time. I think the body is really a reflection of the brain and there are like your body should be used as a tool to be able to uh, amplify and strengthen your brain to go, you know, and longer, the other way around. the brain is a reflection of somebody's body and their, their routine. Absolutely. Um, so a lot of times people are listening, especially when they get involved in a new subject, whatever area that might be, health, entrepreneurship, finances, and they can hear people who have been working on these, whether it's a morning routine, whether it's some sort of habit, they've been doing it for a long time. Mm -hmm. They've perfected it. They've evolved it. Mm -hmm. So it's often difficult to get honest, real advice from people who have been doing it for a long time because we just hear sort of the highlights of it. Right. So, So how that sort of shows up in the morning routine is that I guess the listeners who are listening to this is like, is this every day for you? I should also add that you're a mom, mm-hmm. right? I am a mom. You're a yeah, mom. Three boys. And I think the questions that people are asking is that 
uh, do you do this every day? Um, are there some days that you don't do it? And how much time does this take up? I would say that probably 90 to 95% of the time, this is my morning. So I make sure, you know, I have a 13 year old an almost eight year old and an almost six year old. He's going to be six next week. And, um, they like to have mommy in bed with them in the morning. So like when mommy, you know, when they wake up, they want, they come right into my bed and they want like their morning cuddles. So the way that it's worked for me is that I tend to have to wake up earlier in order to get myself into that, you know, to prime my brain and to prime my body for the day. So it's really just my morning routine has evolved out of necessity because if I wait until after I get the kids lunches packed and their breakfast done and they have all their, you know, forms for school or whatever it looks like, it doesn't happen for me. Like I've already, I feel like I've already lost the day and the intention for the day hasn't been set. And you feel it when you're not in your morning routine. hundred percent. You feel it. Yeah. What are some of the ways that you feel it for you personally when it's not present on a consistent basis in your life? I'm not as focused. I'm not as productive. I'm not as creative. I'm much more easily distracted. I'm usually on my phone more. <laughs> so sometimes, you know, we uh, we both heard Brendan uh, Burchard talking this weekend about uh, productivity and some of the high performers and some of the habits that they have. And one of the things he was saying, which is so profound, is people who check their phones first thing in the morning are 30% less productive over the course of the week. Yeah. And that came out of his survey that he did one of the largest surveys on high performers. Yep. And that's so insightful because we often think that, you know, the, the standard sort of thing is, well, I don't have the time. And it's almost like by creating the time, you get more time, you get more intention, you get more use of that time through the structure of a morning routine. Right. And the minute that you're on your phone, you know, we were kind of just talking about this in the pre-chat a little bit, but the minute that you're on your phone, you're also responding to emails, you're seeing what, you know, happened in the news and you're now on somebody else's agenda rather than your own. So the goals and the dreams and the, you know, the things that you want to be achieving in your life now are all, all of a sudden taking a back seat to other people's agendas, other people's goals. And, you know, your phone will keep your attention, right? Those things are, and even you see with kids that are playing too much on their devices, those things are designed to keep your attention. So while you may be like a child may be focusing on a, you know, a video game or whatever, we're focusing on Instagram and the, you know, all the other social media outlets, those things are keeping your attention, but they're also keeping you away from achieving or putting your attention towards some of the goals and the dreams that you have. And if you're not in the right state, your mind's going to find the evidence for whatever feeling you want to reinforce. That's right. The feeling of I'm alone, the feeling of unworthiness, unworthiness mm-hmm. and all of the feelings that are there. Yeah. Uh, we have so much we want to talk about in this podcast. You have some really great thoughts on keto. You have some great thoughts on women and biohacking. But before I want to go, go there, I want to understand a little bit more about your background. How did you come to this place where not only health was important to you, but it became part of your profession? I have always been around... I have to I have to actually give credit to my mom here. My mom was such an oddball when we were like she was a fitness instructor and like my lunches were always like, you know, growing up it was like Joe Louis and all these like different packaged weird, you know, things. I always had like the hummus and the celery and the so for me you know, nutrition. My mother was always huge on nutrition. I've been taking omega-3 supplements. I can't even tell you now, like maybe 30 years. So I've been, you know, we've been, my mother has always really, uh, done nutrition first. And then she also fitness instructor. So I was always around it. 
Um, and I followed in her footsteps. I also became a fitness instructor. That's how, that's partially actually how I paid for my schooling as a chiropractor, like going through chiropractic college. I was teaching fitness classes and, um, yeah, it's just, it's just always been around me. It's, and I've been really very lucky in that way because I, I have people that I care for and that I serve in the clinic and they've never been exposed to it. So when I'm telling them, you know, maybe you can sub out the cola for some water, it's the, it's sometimes it's the most for, or just have more vegetables. It's the most foreign thing. Whereas having, you know, pro like a, you know, a, bag of chips or, you know, cookies or cra- like those things are foreign to me because my mother was so hardcore into nutrition and fitness. So that's really kind of, it's, it's always been around me. Um, As a kid, if you don't mind me asking, yeah, because people who are listening here, some have children and they're into health and they're thinking about that and making changes. Mm-hmm. Did you rebel as a kid? Did you ever resist it? Did it just feel like, well, this is the only thing that we know? I don't think I ever resisted it. Um, I'm trying to think, I mean, did you ever feel like you lost out on experiences? I was was a bit of a, I was a bit of a pain in the butt for sure. Like between the ages of like 14 to 19. (laughs) So I'm sure that I'm sure if you ask my mom, she would, you know, she could tell you about what a, you know, strong willed person I was, but in terms of food, yeah, it's always, it's just always been what I knew. Um, because I think I mean, sometimes parents are worried that their kids are not going to have certain experiences or this or this or that. Mm-hmm. I think that there are some other individuals on the podcast that have been here who did grow up in this. Mm-hmm. Maybe never had a super major healing crisis. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, they've said, I didn't really feel like I missed out on much. And I think that's okay to remember that yeah. kids are resilient and they'll be adaptable. And of course, we never want to be, you know, the general who's hovering over them, but creating a healthy lifestyle for your kid doesn't automatically mean that they're going to miss out on experiences. I am totally fine being the general with my kids. I'm totally fine with them absolutely hating me because I don't give them money for freezy Fridays, you know, or like in the, we've just moved them to uh, an independent school. But prior to that, they were in, in the public system and every Friday was freezy Fridays. And it was like a big, you know, frozen freezy. And it's like just food coloring and sugar. And they were the only kids that never had it. And they like pizza day, they were the only kids that never had it. And for sure, like my little one would come home and be like, mommy, why can't I have that food? But I, I know too much to allow that to happen. And, you know, I don't want to use the word succumb, but I am, you know, like to succumb to that peer pressure would be against the, uh, the alignment and the, the core values that I have around nutrition And I really think that I don't want, you know, really cheap pizza and freezies making up the cellular structure of my children's mitochondria of their endothelial cell. I don't want that in my children. So you're setting a healthy foundation and then a time in their life when they have a little bit more bandwidth to be able to process it, they Mm -hmm. can make their own decisions, but they have that base. I can remember being young. We didn't have freezy Fridays, but we had pizza and other things like that. Mm -hmm. And my performance in school going down, but having no understanding that it's related to these foods. And I think that's the challenge sometimes for kids is that Mm -hmm. it's very easy for it to get out of control. Right. And you also see behavioral changes as well. Like we see, you know, children in the practice where we are, you know, coaching the moms to clean up their diet and we find that their behavior starts to change. And that's kind of a really important uh, thing just to, you know, for moms that are listening, when you're looking at a child and you see a behavior that you're not liking, 
behavior is usually downstream from things that are happening in the brain or chemical stress, right? So very simply with food, like kind of to follow on the example of food that we're talking about, when you can clean up the, you know, the cookies and the crackers and the whatever those things are, you will often see changes in behavior. And I'm not, I'm not, you know, saying that my kids never have junk food. Like Mm -hmm. my kids never, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, for sure my kids have, you know, had way too much sugar. There's been birthday parties and I just haven't been able to corral them quick enough or whatever. And, but I also notice that they have behavioral changes, their sleep. They have like my older son gets uh, tummy aches. So, um, yeah. Let's go back to your journey. So you were talking about growing up in this and giving credit to your mom and gratitude to your, to your mom. When did the thought come of separate from, of course you were in chiropractic school and Mm -hmm. in chiropractic school, I'm sure not much has changed. If I listen to members of my family who are in chiropractic school, Mm -hmm. it's a lot of really great information, Mm -hmm. but maybe not always this advanced nutritional piece or this other layer of like functional medicine. How did you bridge that on top of the education that you got and Basically, how did you find out about the world of functional medicine and feel like this is something that I want to incorporate into my practice? For me, I really felt like, uh, so any medical doctors, any chiropractors, any naturopathic students that are listening, for me, I really felt like when I got my degree, that was just like the ticket to get into the race. Like I had just begun. And I think where some people, you know, can go wrong is, you know, they do their schooling and I'm not saying that schooling is easy. Schooling is, you know, medical school is difficult. Chiropractic school is different. Like all these different professional degrees, it's, it's very difficult to, you know, to kind of go through that. There's a lot of volume, a lot of intense pressure. However, I always looked at getting my degree as my starting point in terms of my learning journey. This was just a couple of letters behind my name. And for me, I never called it functional medicine. I never called it biohacking, even though I refer to those, like I refer to those terms now, but it was always just, you know, as a chiropractor, I reduce, you know, the, the physical manifestations of uh, inflammation and through fuel or through food, I reduce some of the chemical manifestations of inflammation. So uh, and then through mindset, it's, you know, it's just the, you know, it's the thoughts that we have that will create that, you know, cortisol or that stress cascade. So for me, it's always those three things have sort of always been part of my role as a, as a, as a doctor, as a health coach, as a, as a, you know, um, a support person and somebody's journey, but it's also something that I also live as well. It's really important for, like, I would never you know, go to a chiropractor or go to a medical doctor who was overweight or who wasn't really like walking the walk. Right. So for me, it's really just when we, when I talk about nutrition, when I talk about mindset and we talk about movement therapies, those things are just extensions of who I am. Those things are, those three sort of pillars of health are the, are the most powerful ways of eliciting change in the body. At the Archangel summit, you hosted a panel with, uh, a few of our friends, mm-hmm. including Dr. Hyman. Yes. And uh, really when I saw the questions on the panel, I thought, you know, Dr. Stephanie is really great at making biohacking accessible, understandable, and practical. So let's talk about that. And especially under the context for women. Mm-hmm. Biohacking, just hacking as a terminology sounds so techy. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't sound like something that, right. you know, a lot of people, it can be intimidating, the languaging yeah. sometimes that we use. Mm-hmm. How would you describe biohacking and how do you make it accessible to your patients 
and the many women who come and seek you out mm-hmm. who are interested but might have been steered away through where this conversation is being traditionally hosted. Yeah, I think women are like the original biohackers because we will like legit do anything to feel better. Like we will try anything. And I can't tell you how many times people have come into my clinic like, I don't know, no one can help me. Just like I've done everything. So, you know, biohacking, you know, being a female biohacker or just the word biohacking really just means for me leveling up your biology. And what I mean by that is giving yourself the tools and everybody's a little different. So you do have to nuance this for like, this is not just like cookie cutter stuff, but for a a lot of people, it's really just about figuring out the way that your biology best responds to a stimulus and then just kind of going with it. But you know, the, the art and the science around that is figuring out and how to nuance those protocols for everybody. And this has come out of your own personal experimentation that you thought this is. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. All the to, time. Love, yeah. love to hear that. Like what kind of, uh, what were some examples of, can you think of any like big shifts that you saw in your own personal health or mindset when you brought in these components and what were those components? Maybe some examples. Sure. Yeah. So I think, you know, when we talk about, we'll kind of go through all three of them. So there's like physical, there's chemical and there's mindset. So when we talk about physical, reducing some of the markers of physical inflammation, I will say this until it's the funniest paradox. When I was in school, I was probably the most unhealthy that I ever was. Like I was in school to become a healthcare provider and I was like sitting all day long studying, staying up late, not sleeping properly, and then sitting all day through lectures. So when I graduated, for me, there was a big push to start moving my body again because I was a fitness instructor through uh, through chiropractic school. But, you know, all that sitting, like I was sitting for eight hours a day and then in class. Like we had eight hours of class a day and then you you go and you study until like two or three or four in the morning. So, and then you repeat. So for me, I always feel better. My, like, I am such a happy person when I am exercising. So I started running. uh, I started doing like long distance, uh, like steady state running. And then one of the things that I did uh, shortly after graduating was I uh, started competing in figure competitions. So if you ever want to make sure that you get to the gym, you know, commit to getting in a bikini in front of like 400 people and being judged for it. So I started training to compete in a figure competition when I was, I was living in New York at the time. I was like heavy lifting. I was like doing that for like three or four hours every day. And then you had to have recovery. So my nutrition and the, um, the exercise physiology that I had to learn in terms of how to, to optimize my recovery so I could go back and do that the next day. It was a very intense state of learning for me, like those eight months prepping for that for that competition. So that would be a really good example of how I really honed in my love for fitness. In terms of chemistry and reducing chemical inflammation, uh, for me, like a game changer for me has been like the ketogenic diet. So when I was younger, mom was super into fitness, lots of vegetables, you know, into nutrition and, and whatnot. But she was part of that like low fat, high carb kind of stuff in the 80s, Let's right? Get a ton of fiber, we're right. scared of fat. Right. And, you know, we all know now that they were, you know, replacing this nourishing, satiating, good for you fat with sugar, right? So I remember just being freaking miserable on these like I would count out my my grape it was just horrendous so 
when I started doing keto, um, I want to say we're talking like maybe four years ago now, I really started getting really into it and like the science behind it and like, you know, exogenous and endogenous ketones and all that good stuff that really changed my ability to focus, to be able to go longer in terms of my productivity and to be able to keep my energy levels up for my kids in the evening. So I practice like my, my clinical practice, I'm adjusting here. Uh, we're at my clinic right now recording this podcast. So I will, uh, I finished practice at about one o'clock. And that gives me some time to do meetings and finish up paperwork with for patients. And then I'm at the school at 3.45. So, and then my kids want to play with me for like three or four hours. So for me to have the, the sustenance to kind of go all day long, the ketogenic diet was a really big game changer for me. What are the biggest myths that people have or that you see the media have when it comes to keto? I think the, probably the biggest misconception would be that you need to be eating trays of bacon and multiple sticks of butter. Um, I like to call it like the bacon, the butter and the burgers. Right. And I often refer to that as dirty keto. And like for sure, when you eat those things, you will probably see an initial loss of uh, weight if that's the goal. But when we when we kind of play the long game, when we are sort of thinking about longevity and vitality and health span and lifespan, eating like bacon and butter every single day, I'm not going to recommend that as a health strategy. So I would probably say that people think that keto is like weird. You're drinking pickle juice and you're doing salt shots and you're doing you know, <laughs> you know butter and burgers and bacon. So that would be you know what the keto a properly formulated ketogenic diet is really uh very much a plant-based you know there's lots of green leafy vegetables which are very in terms of like phytonutrients vitamins minerals uh nutrient like you know uh, cancer preventative properties in like kale and swiss chard and and all these things so lots of lots of greens and um and i probably the other thing i would say in terms of bigger misconceptions are high protein like we, we've already kind of touched on this a little bit but a lot of people will mistake keto for high fat and high protein and sometimes when your protein consumption is too high that can be just as insulinergic as or it can have the same insulin stimulus response uh, as carbohydrates do um, so what again when we're thinking about playing the long game because I don't I don't like to play the short game with anything I think it's it's boring. Uh, when we think about how to live longer and how to, so that's like lifespan, how many years you live. And when we think about how many years we spend in that lifespan healthy, so your health span, we really do want to be having things from the earth, things that feed us, that are designed to feed us. Yeah. So a Lots of protein, I think people go wrong on that as well. And it's it's hard, you know, it's really easy in theory to say, well, we shouldn't be having too much protein, but it really kind of de- like, you know, depends on how much you're lifting and depends on what your, you know, your you know, muscle synthesis goals are. And it really, you know, uh, determines your, you know, it's, it's dependent on your activity levels and your, and your metabolic uh, fitness as well. What do women have to be thinking about when they're considering the ketogenic diet? And are there any times where, somebody wouldn't want to be on a prolonged keto diet? Yeah, that's a good question. I think um, women in general, uh, well, I'll back up and say, when we look at a lot of the literature that's done, uh, we see a lot of 
you know, literature done in like mice models and rat models. So you can first make the argument, well, it's like a rat model. It's not really applicable to humans. But then when we actually look at the population that they're studying, we tend to see uh, like in these studies, we tend to see that they tend to be male. So when we're looking at how we can apply this to the female and the female physiology, I think that there there needs to be a little bit of clinical input here because we just don't have the literature that supports like what a ketogenic diet will do for a woman because, you know, like we have like sex hormones and there's just more complexity to uh, female, physio- female physiology than there is for men. On my program, I have like men just think about losing weight and they do. Like women, it takes a little bit longer for them. It's a little bit more complicated. It's a little bit more complicated. So... Most women that I see are in some stage and I kind of grade them like stage one, stage two, stage three. So increasing in severity, stage three would be like, you know, complete collapse and stage one would be very mild. Uh, When we look at their adrenal function, we tend to see women and and I know that I've like gone in and out of adrenal insufficiency many, many times, Um, you know, being pregnant you know, breastfeeding and like raising young children, uh, we are hormonally completely, um, you know, depleted. And then, you know, your adrenals have to kind of pick up the slack. So I, I often find that most women are in some stage of adrenal insufficiency. And when we look at caring for, uh, again, when we bring this back to the brain, um, there's a really strong or really close relationship between the brain and the adrenals. So if you are constantly stressed out, like being pregnant, like, Uh, you know, giving birth and recovery from birth and breastfeeding and constantly being a flex in a flex position, you know, feeding your baby um, and then just worrying about being a new mom and all the things that come with that. um, And you don't heal from that. You know, I often a lot of women that come into my practice have like eight, nine, 10, 11 year old kids. And they're like, I just am so tired. Like I'm flatlining. So in terms of, uh, you know, protocols for those types of uh, for that, for that type of presentation, I don't tend to do long bouts of therapeutic keto, uh, therapeutic keto. So I tend to cycle the keto with these people so that, and explain what cycling means. Sure. So, um, cycling means that you are, there are either days or weeks where you are doing kind of a classic ketogenic diet. And when in my program, we do like a 70% fat, 25%, um, uh, protein and then, then, then the remainder about five percent of that is uh, the remainder is carbohydrates so we will either have you on you know a couple days or maybe a week kind of depending on the um the uh, the amount of insufficiency that you have and then we will cycle that with more carbs so you'll have like two or three days let's say on keto and then one day where you have more of a refeed like a carb refeed a carbohydrate refeed the other way that we do that is the other sort of nuance uh, that I do with people if they're if they really have like quite severe adrenal insufficiency is I'll have them uh, practice keto through the day and then in the evening we'll do like a a, a glycogen uh, like a, a refeed so I'll give them something like honey and you know give them a tea with some cinnamon and maybe some honey in it or um, some cold rice cold sweet potatoes this kind of thing where we are improving the glycogen stores of that patient or that woman uh, so that she can sleep overnight because one of the things we find with people with adrenal insufficiency or adrenal fatigue is another way way to refer to it um, is people wake up like their cortisol secretion like their stress hormone is um, 
the secretion and the pattern is off. So they often will wake up multiple times in the night and then they're exhausted during the day. So that furthers the deterioration of that adrenal gland. So giving them a, a refeed at night, so something that's um, either in the form of a resistant starch, like the cold sweet potatoes or even cold white rice sometimes, some honey, uh, those things will kind of fill up your glycogen stores so that you can make it through the night without waking up. And on your panel, you actually, I think, asked a friend of ours, mutual friend of ours, uh, JJ Virgin, about how her diet shows up. And one of the things she said is that if she doesn't sometimes get carbohydrates in the evening, she has a hard time falling asleep. That's right. Super interesting. And again, another example of how even within these things, it's different per patients. And there are some differences between sometimes men and women mm-hmm. in their body and how things process. Do you within that and these this uh, clean keto, which I love the name, by the way, <laughs> do you also tell people to like listen to their body and if something isn't working for them, you know, all the time, especially when we're talking about fasting. So when we when we I like to integrate fasting protocols. Um, but again, for someone who is in adrenal insufficiency, the fasting is not long. It's usually like a, a time restricted eating window where we will get them to eat all their all their food in like a 10 or maybe a 12 hour window. And then we would have a complimentary, you know, 12 hour fast. So the framework is still beneficial for them. The idea of eating slightly higher fat diet, burning fat as fuel, but we're just being a little bit more mindful based on that patient's history of what they've gone through. Absolutely. And will you have them on both, you know, if they're a patient of yours, of course, would you have them on both adrenal plan while also doing the keto? Yeah. So that's, and that's, that's sort of how we nuance the ketogenic protocol. So like a classic keto protocol would be, you are trying to get into a state of ketosis and stay there so that you're basically like feeding off your own stores of fat for someone who has uh, adrenal fatigue. We want to still uh, extract some of the benefits of the ketogenic diet. So reduce like improving insulin sensitivity, reducing weight, if that's an issue for them, which it often is actually, if they are if they have too much cortisol because that actually uh, insulin and cortisol kind of are twins like they go up and down together so if you have a lot of cortisol circulating in the body you tend to also have a lot of insulin so these patients will also have insulin resistance and we see changes in their you know their lipidology etc but um, for someone with adrenal fatigue i absolutely will give them a ketogenic style diet but it's nuanced kind of just based on their severity so if it's really severe we give them a night feed if it's kind of like you know maybe a mild to moderate case i might get them on keto for you know two or three days and then a refeed where there's more carbohydrates like enough carbohydrates to inhibit uh, a ketogenic state Uh, the beautiful thing about it is that you know a practitioner like yourself or somebody working with a functional medicine chiropractor doctor you know a naturopath just somebody that is aware of this they can, in a way, I see you creating a very specific period of time where you're giving somebody a challenge. There might be some things of it that work. There might be some things of that that they find that they want to change, but they wouldn't have known until they went through that challenge. Right. And then off of that, they can get to the next step mm-hmm. of their diet mm-hmm. or their lifestyle. I want to go back to something that we talked about in the beginning. And you know, you hinted towards this fact that it's not just our morning routine, it's our evening routine. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I've seen in my own life that the better my night is planned, the better I think about my evening routine, the easier it is to get into the morning routine. Let's touch on that just for a second. Mm -hmm. Since we talked about the importance of, you know, if you're doing ketogenic, maybe incorrectly for you, you maybe have a hard time sleeping. What's important to you for your evening routine? 
So just like my morning routine, I tend to have a very structured evening routine. So a couple things that even before the evening comes, I make sure that I, I like to wear uh, blue blocking glasses during the day. So I spend a lot of time in front of my computer. So really limiting the amount of uh, blue light that's coming in because that will, um, and that's a really easy hack that anybody can do because that will really affect your body's ability to get into that parasympathetic or that relaxed state um, to and, and to be able to initiate sleep. So blue blocking glasses, lights start to get dark. Like when outside is dark, my house is also dark. So we keep most of the lights off. So we don't have lights on. We don't have the TV on, that kind of thing. When and that starts around like what, what time about? I actually try to fall as much as I can. I actually like to try and follow like through the winter, like the house kind of gets like dark at like four. Yeah. In Toronto, <laughs> I think then, the sun sets then, yeah. like at like four thirty PM in yeah, the exactly. in December. And we and I try to follow that because we are, you know, creatures of the earth and in the winter time, you know, there's less sunlight and I think there's I just like to follow the rhythms that that um that Mother Earth is telling me. Sometimes so, if yeah. I turn the lights dim too early, I mean I get naturally sleepy, sleepy yeah but it's tough i you know mm-hmm. you have sometimes things to do mm-hmm. and I, I fall asleep at like eight o'clock right right that's actually pretty close to my bedtime actually. <laughs> <laughs> i'm usually in bed at like nine i'm like out by nine but yeah i um I, so i like to keep like the lights dim um blue blocking glasses um as i'm sort of getting ready to retire for bed i do two things to sort of tie i, I like to call it like you know tying up the day. So I I do a daily reflection, like what were the wins that I had that day? And they don't have to be big wins. Like they can be, you know, I had a really like good feedback from a patient or I really loved the way that my son, you know, whatever, whatever he did, drew me a picture or what, like his experience today, the way he communicated, whatever it is. Um, like I will list out as many wins that I can think of for that day. And then I also try to reframe uh, some of the negative things that may have happened. So any challenges that I had, whether it was, uh, you know, clinically challenging or if something happened with, um, you know, my partner or my children or, you know, whatever it is, um, or maybe it was an interaction with someone that I wasn't super happy about the way I showed up for it. I will always kind of recreate the situation and I will recreate it in a way where if there was something that I said that I didn't like afterwards, I was like, oh man, that was kind of like a not I wasn't acting in my best self I will recreate it in a way where I was acting as the person that I I always try to show up to every day in my life and, and this and this is you imagining the situation yeah. seeing how it went mm-hmm. but then imagining a different way that you handled it and a different outcome yeah a different way that I handled it and the reason for that there's some neuroscience uh, behind here as well like what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to neural I'm trying to create new neural pathways because that situation will always show up again until you learn how to deal with it right that's just you know the universe what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to create new neural pathways so when I'm presented with a situation that maybe it's the exact same one or it has a similar theme that I have another channel or I have another way to respond I love that so you're you're doing something important you're focused you know an employee or team member comes and interrupts you. Mm-hmm. You might not be happy because it came across as you like snapping at them. Mm-hmm. You're reimagining the situation. Mm-hmm. You're seeing yourself calm and just asking them for a little bit of time mm-hmm. before you go and answer their question. Mm-hmm. And then next time it's more likely to happen that way. Right. I love that. And maybe it's not next time. Maybe it's five times from now. You yeah. Know, whenever it is. Right. But whenever I'm trying to create a new channel or a new pathway for me to be able to respond to. 
what else is important to you for your evening routine? We've talked about reframing Mm -hmm. events and experiences, which I think that's the first time we've talked about that on the podcast. And I love that. There's times that I do that. And it's usually I find that I do that when I'm in a very painful situation and I'm thinking about it and that sort of thing. But I often don't apply that to things that are in that moderate category, just that I want to have a different behavior change. So I love that advice that's there. Um, Dimming the lights, really great. Anything else that's important to you? And of course, you're responsible for a family too. Right. uh, That you see that's helpful when it comes to an evening routine. I will often make my to-do list, like the things that I want to be doing tomorrow, the night before. A couple of reasons for this. One, I really like to, if I can, as much as I can, sort of conserve my brain juice in the morning. Like we we know that like our decision-making ability is finite. We don't have an infinite amount of, you know, decision-making, you know, I like to call it brain juice or energetic expenditure. So getting that done the night before, it's a very efficient way. Like when you wake up, you do your morning routine and you actually know what you're like. Once that routine is done, the kids are in school, you're at work or wherever you are and you, you, you are, you know, you're, you have a, you have a plan already. You don't have to think about, okay, what am I going to be doing today? You already know. Uh, I like to do that the day before. Um, or the night before rather. And the other reason why I like to do that is, you know, if I'm working on a project or there's a, you know, there's a, there's a problem that I'm trying to solve. I, and I don't know how this is going to sound, but I'm just going to tell you anyway. Uh, Just tell us. (laughs) Everybody here is open. Uh, I like to ask my subconscious. I like to ask before, like, you know, I'm in bed, I I have my to-do list that's already sort of done. And if there's a problem that I'm trying to figure out, whether it's like a, a project that I'm working on or what have you, I will try to ask my subconscious to help me figure it out while I'm sleeping. So I'm kind of, you know, noodling on it, if you will, overnight. And I find when I do that, I am able to, you know, think of, you know, nuanced ways to approach a problem or I have, you know, maybe a different idea that comes up during my ideation or like my idea downloads in the morning. So I I will often ask my subconscious in the evening to to help me out a little bit. I love that. Yeah. I want to talk about this random game which many of us have heard about <laughs> Tetris. But before yeah. we do that, a practical tip that I think that um, you as both a practitioner and as a mom might have some suggestions on. So our audience, just as naturally wellness audiences are, it, steer, it leans a little bit more female. Sure. I think it's about 60, 65% uh, female. Hi, ladies. <laughs> Hello, ladies. <laughs> Hello, uh, ladies. <laughs> and um, a, a lot of mothers, a lot of new moms. Sure. And we talk a lot about community and the importance of community and friendship and connection as Mm -hmm. it's related to uh, brain health. Mm -hmm. And one question that we always get coming in that's pretty frequent is that it can be very isolating Mm -hmm. as a mom Mm -hmm. and especially as a new mom. Mm -hmm. Do you have any thoughts for that? If a patient came to you and told you that this is what they're experiencing, everybody's life circumstances are different. I'm sure if whether they're working or not working plays into it, but um have you ever felt that? And have there have been things that you've done in your own life to bring back connection, you know, even as a mom? That's a really good question. I, I think that I would say for the most part, most new moms that I see have felt the way that you're describing. So they feel isolated. Oftentimes they feel scared and nervous, like especially new, like first time moms, like I don't like I'm trying not to have my baby die. Like I'm just trying to get through the day. Right. And then you have all different sorts of opinions from the mother-in-laws and the friends and the grocery store clerk and like everyone has an opinion on how you should be raising your child and 
I think it really differs. Like the, the, the challenge really comes in because we don't raise our children today the way that we used to like children, you know, the, the saying like it takes a village to raise a child. And it really did take a village to raise a child. Like there was when we were more tribal, you know, a child would be taken care of, like mom would be nearby, sisters would be nearby grandma would be nearby neighbors would be nearby and we would have the like mom could take a break and today we see mom's doing the laundry and mom's cooking the thing and mom's taking them to music class and mom's doing that you know she's doing and then she's also breastfeeding and she's staying up overnight and so i think that it's absolutely understandable and that women are feeling completely isolated because we now live in our own homes. We don't live like mom doesn't live with us. Grandma doesn't live with us anymore. And if you're, if you are lucky enough for that to be your reality, then you are ahead of most women where like we live apart from our parents. Our parents are far away as a new mom. When I was a new mom, I was so scared. I thought I was doing everything wrong. Like I had read all the books and you know, I'm a, I'm a super nerd. Like, like when I was pregnant, I'm like, I'm going to learn everything there is to know about pregnancy and being a mom. I read every single book that honestly doesn't mean anything. You know, the best clinical, the best information that I got was just going through the process, you know, thinking that I knew everything, you know, the hubris that I had thinking that I, you know, I knew all the right breastfeeding positions and I knew what this meant and that meant and what, ha- what have you. But at the end of the day, nothing is going to school you then other than the experience. So in terms of fostering community, the best thing that I did was I found other moms who I felt were like me. And, you know, maybe we're going we can go off on a tangent or this is a conversation for another time. But I've always sort of felt and I, you know, I have very like I have a very attachment parenting style. So my kids breastfed. One was almost three, you know, the other one was 18, I think 18 or 19 months. So I had extended breastfeeding with both children. Um, and I had people in my family telling me you're spoiling the kids. They're never going to want to, you know, you're giving them in other situations. It was like, you're giving them too much love and you know, this, you have to be more distant. And, you know, these were some of the messages that I was getting from like my immediate family. So first thing I would say to new moms is you're way smarter in terms of your intuition than you think. Um, the second is find people like, you know, join moms groups. Like there's communities everywhere, even like even online, you can find online groups. If you're, you know, if you're rural or it's too far or it's, you know, for whatever reason, you're not able to meet in person, you can find online communities where you can really be honest and open about some of the challenges that you're having and receive support. And I've been part of those online communities as well. And it's really, really lovely. So I think, you know, there's the disadvantage to sort of today is that we are, you know, more isolated physically, but there are ways that we can bridge those gaps through online, you know, through uh, online communities and whatnot as well. Just takes a little bit of planning. Yeah just takes a little bit of time, Mm -hmm. which is tough because that's often the thing that uh, maybe a mom doesn't have, but makes a huge impact Mm long-term for the folks that do find it. Tell me about Tetris. (laughs) So, um, I, I, as a little backstory, I tend to, you know, my kids, they are allowed to play on their devices as a reward at the end of the week for 20 minutes. The only exception. So I'm super hardcore about restricting their screen time. 
The only exception to that is their ability to play Tetris um, and my ability to play Tetris. I play Tetris every single day and so do my kids. And the reason... On the classic like Nintendo system, uh, on like, we computer, have like a, computer game. Uh, we have like an i... Uh, what are they called? iPad. Like it's okay. like the bigger yeah. one or whatever. So I love this because it has been shown to increase uh, gray matter in the brain. So there's a couple of studies but they've actually nicknamed this the Tetris effect and one of the classic studies that really demonstrated this was they took uh, a group of people who played Tetris for 30 minutes every single day for three months and then a group of uh, people who didn't and then they compared their gray matter uh, so areas that are involved in long-term memory even working memory uh, spatial recognition cognition and decision making so a little bit into the frontal lobe there as well and what they found was the people who were playing Tetris for 30 minutes every day for three months, there was uh, a very significant increase in their uh, gray matter in their brain. So this is another like hack, uh, especially for, you know, even women like back to our talking about like new moms and like having baby brain and feeling like brain fog. You know, when we think about what is important about the gray matter in the brain, it's like memory, right? Long term memory. So your memories from many years ago, but also your working memory and working memory is really, you know, what did somebody tell you two hours ago that you need to do now? What did somebody, you know, what did you learn yesterday on that, you know, docu-series that you were watching? So working memory is more of a recent, like, you know, intermediate or short-term memory. The other thing that they showed in this Tetris effect is that your spatial recognition, your cognitive decision-making was also amplified as well. So that's the only exception to the rule, the Tetris effect. My kids can play Tetris every day. I love it. And, yeah. <laughs> and obviously this, this was something that you found out about more recently. So yeah. So if, if people have younger kids mm-hmm. and again, thoughts, everybody, every parent is different. And some people say, you know, I'm, I'm not going to have any screen time until a certain age. And some people mm-hmm. are like, listen, I don't care. My kids can do this and do that. And obviously everybody has the right to do what they want to do. Sure. Any opinion uh, from your perspective of like how early if somebody has a younger child? So the American uh, Pediatrics Association recommends zero time on a device up until the age of two. Um, and I would very uh, strongly encourage anybody to follow those recommendations. When we think about cortical development, uh, we want to be developing the baby's ability to pan around her horizon or his horizon. When we stick a, um, you know, a, a screen in front of them, what we tend to find is, uh, this is also just speaking from, you know, a structural, like a neuroskeleton, neurostructural developmental perspective. We tend to have the babies like that anterior head carriage starts to happen in a very young child. So why that's important is she's not going to, she's not going to, if her head is already forward, she's not going to be developing her, the curve in her neck. Um, she's not going to be turning her head left and right, which is something that, uh, happens in something called the coronal plane. She's only kind of midline. And when we think about the adults today, right, you think about, you know, adults that we stay seated for many hours, we're kind of in that same position in that sagittal plane or that midline plane. And this is what we, I mean, this is really a pandemic. I see like adults that are, you know, younger and younger now, um, with no curves in their neck with degenerating discs and degenerating joints. And it's because Mm. they've been spending hours upon hours in this flexed position, uh, or what we call anterior head carriage, which is just a word to describe when your head translates forward. 
It doesn't allow for proper development of the cervical curves or the curve in the neck. And it really, you start to degenerate some of the extensor muscles or the muscles in the back of the neck that are really important for being able to, you know, when we think about posture, uh, being able to hold your head up tall and proud. What we tend to find, and I say this like a bit tongue in cheek, is that, you know, people's heads are entering the room like two minutes before their bodies do because it's like, you know, your head is so far forward that what we start to do, what that, what that weight tends to do, because like, the, you know, an adult is like, we'll say like 13 to 15 pounds in terms of the weight of the human head. Head, that all that's being translated over the anterior part of the or the front part of the neck so and it's not really designed to be loaded there mm. and there's other considerations for like shearing the brain stem and all these different things so as much as you can i would say uh limiting screen time would be a good idea for and if it's possible to do absolutely none under two and then what i did for years um you know i have a almost eight and almost six year old as i was mentioning before uh it's like 20 minutes on the weekend one 20 minute session on saturday one 20 minute session on sunday and that might not work for everybody so i'm not saying you need to do what i'm doing it's just a Um, possibility it's a way to keep it kind of structured. Yeah. Yeah. For me that, and I really work well in frameworks. So I know, and so do my kids. I think kids really thrive on frameworks and I think they thrive on consistency. Um, so they know that if they do all their chores and they, you know, all the things Mm -hmm. that they're supposed to do, then they can, they can, you know, play on their, what they can do. What's the thing that they were doing now? Splatoon. They play Splatoon for 20 minutes. Yeah. Never heard of it. I got to go Google that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Dr. Stephanie, this has been great. Thank you for having us in your clinic and uh, thank you for the incredible event that you hosted, uh, co-hosted this weekend, the Archangel Summit. For people that want to find out more about you and the work that you do and the program that you mentioned earlier, give us the breakdown, give us the websites, how we find you on social media and uh, the Clean Keto program. Awesome, yeah. So if you're in Toronto and you uh, want to come by, we're at thehealthloft.ca. Our online program uh, is open to anybody and we have people all across the world in it. So that is ketocleandiet.com. And then uh, if you want to find me on Instagram, it's uh, Dr. Stephanie Estima. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you again. We so appreciate you. It was awesome being here. Thank you for having me. Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Just a reminder, this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast is not, I repeat, it's not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or otherwise qualified medical professional. This podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you're looking for help in your journey, seek out a qualified medical practitioner. If you're looking for a functional medicine practitioner, you can visit ifm.org and search their find a provider database. It's important that you have somebody in your corner that's qualified, that's trained, that's a licensed healthcare practitioner helping you make changes, especially when it comes to your health.